Hi, I'm Ken Blanchard, and you're listening to Slapcast. Welcome, everyone, to episode 37 of the Slapcast. This episode is part one of another two-parter, and I can't wait for you to meet my guests. But first, a few reminders and announcements. You can find this podcast where all podcasts are found. You know how to do that. We are the Slapcast. You can reach us at slapcast at relayleadership.org. Now, we have another virtual event coming up. It's called Impact Columbus, and it's being held on September 30th at 8 a.m. in the morning. Like Leadership Forum, if you're an avid listener, you know what I'm talking about here. Like Leadership Forum, we'll be using a highly interactive platform. We'll have multiple speakers and guests, live chat, plenty of giveaways. And to learn more, just go to relayleadership.com slash impactcolumbus. Also, I haven't mentioned this in a minute. Earlier this year, I published my first book. And if you buy a copy from Relay, 100% of the proceeds go to our little nonprofit here. It's a great way to support this podcast and the overall work of Relay. All you have to do is visit RelayLeadership.com and the backslash is Servant Leader Mindset, the name of the book. Today, we have a big treat. We have Ken Blanchard on the show today. I really consider him kind of like a father in servant leadership. So for those of you who don't know, Ken is a prominent, sought-after author, speaker, business consultant. He's conducted groundbreaking research and thought leadership that has influenced the day-to-day management and leadership of people and companies throughout the world. His passion is to turn every leader into a servant leader, and he does that through his speaking, writing, and curriculum, which is delivered through channel partners all over the world. And Relay happens to be one of those channel partners. Now, most people know Ken for his iconic 1982 classic, The One Minute Manager. It has sold more than 13 million copies and remains on bestseller lists today. Since then, he has authored and co-authored 60 books, including Raving Fans, The Secret, and Leading at a Higher Level, just to name a few. They've been translated into more than 42 languages as well. In 2005, I think this is super cool, Ken was inducted into Amazon's Hall of Fame as one of the top 25 best-selling authors of all time. The Ken Blanchard Companies is an international management training and consulting firm that he and his wife, Margie Blanchard, they began it in 1979 in beautiful San Diego, California. In addition to being a renowned speaker, author, and consultant, Ken is a trustee emeritus of the board of trustees at his alma mater, Cornell University, and he also teaches students in the Master of Science and Executive Leadership program there at the University of San Diego. All right, let's meet Ken Blanchard. So hello, Ken. I am so excited to have you here today on the Slapcast. Thank you for making time to spend a, an hour or so with us to record this. Welcome. Well, thank you, Shannon. It's great to be with you. You know, I've shared with the audience a little bit about you, more of like your bio. I've told them about the books that you've written, a little bit of your history, really a high-level overview of your career. What I would really love for you to share with the audience to really kick things off is 
what got you started in all of this? You know, a lot of those bios don't really go into the why. So what's the why for you? What got you started in leadership development? Kind of give us that insight. I really got started through my father, who retired as an admiral in the Navy. He was an incredible uh, human being, and uh, I'll never forget. I I had an interesting upbringing. I went to a 95% Jewish elementary school, and Jewish holidays, they put us all in one room, and I retired the Goya of the Month Award, and uh, then I merged into uh, 95% African-American elementary school into junior high, and, and since I was basketball player and I was bright. I won all the elections as the compromise candidate. And I won the president of the seventh grade. And I came home and I told my dad and my dad said, well, son, your leadership training begins now. He said, now that you're president, don't ever use your position because great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. And uh, he said, it's a myth in the military. It's always my way or the highway. He said, sure, in battle, somebody's got to call the shots. He said, but if you act like a big deal and you're more important than your men, they'll shoot you before the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was quite a war hero and uh, and a real great role model for me. And then my mother was an interesting person because she had a great philosophy. She was into positive thinking before Norman Vincent Peale. And she told me when I was young, she says, now, don't you ever act like you're better than anybody else. But don't you let anybody else like like they're better than you. Mm. God didn't make any junk. There's a pearl of goodness in every human being, so dig for it. And so that's my philosophy. I've been digging for the pearls. One of the things I loved about your, I, I called your cell phone earlier in your voicemail. You said you you like catching people doing something. I think I believe you said doing something right. Yes. And uh, uh, tell me about that. What's what's your where'd that come from? Well, that's really the second secret of the one-minute manager. You know, I met Spencer Johnson at a cocktail party when we moved out here to San Diego. Uh, Adelaide Bree, who wrote uh, Visualizations, directed the movies of your mind. She was the first first people into self-healing through visualization and all. And she invited authors down. And I had written a textbook uh, when I was at Ohio University uh, on management with Paul Hersey. And so I got invited, and Spencer wrote a whole bunch of children's books. And uh, so uh, my wife spent, spent Spencer first and carried him over and, and introduced him and said, you guys ought to write a children's book for managers. They won't read anything else. And <laughs> Spencer was working on a one-minute scolding uh, for the psychiatrist, and I uh, invited him uh, to a seminar I was doing that next week in town, and he came and laughed. And at the end of the seminar, I came running up and said, forget parenting, let's do the one-minute manager. And since he was a children's book writer and I'm a storyteller, we decided to write a parable and uh, around three secrets, you know. And uh, so the first secret really was, uh, you know, one minute goal setting because all good performance starts with clear goals. And then once people are clear on goals, you ought to wander around and see if you can catch them doing something right and give them a one minute praising and accent the positive. And then if they're uh, not performing the way you want, you go and see them and give them a one-minute redirect, uh, or we initially call it one-minute reprimand, but we changed that later on yeah. uh, for modern uh, kind of things. So uh, of all the things I've taught over the years, if somebody said, I'm going to take everything away uh, from you, but one thing I would hold on to catching people doing things right and accenting the positive. I'm working on a fun book right now called Duh, D-U-H apostrophe, and 
you know, why isn't common sense common practice? And perfect example is I think that the key to organizations is to catch people doing things right and accent the positive. Yet when I ask people around the world, how do you know whether you're doing a good job? The number one response I still get is nobody's yelled at me. Uh, you know, like no news is good news, you know? And so, duh, I don't know why people are getting caught doing things right. That's so unfortunate. And, you know, a lot of the current research out on employee engagement, and actually I believe uh, Carolyn Wiley did a study that was highlighted in The Power of Moments by Dan and Chip Heath. And she talked about how they they interviewed supervisors and then all of their direct reports and that, and that 80% of supervisors say that they... Um, that they acknowledged the contributions and encouraged their subordinates. And then when they interviewed the subordinates, only 20% of them said that they felt appreciated. And so what I always tell managers, whatever you think you're doing, double down because it's not enough. The perception is not what you think it is. Sure it is. Yeah. yeah. Interesting, yeah. It's very interesting. We all, we all think we're great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. So. Well, Feedback, I've always felt, is the breakfast of champions. So people ought to say, how am I doing? You know, because I, I want to be recognizing and catching you doing things right. You know, how am I doing? Yeah, and I, some of the, when, when I do these workshops and we talk about giving feedback like that, one of the fears that comes up in our participants often is, well, I'm afraid if I do too much of that, people will get a big head. And I thought, I've never seen that happen. I don't know where that fear comes from. I've only seen it elevate people and give them hope. And, and so I'm always really curious about that fear of why we withhold that so much because we're afraid someone's going to get full of themselves when we tell them they're doing a good job. Well, you got to make sure that your praisings are specific for things that you're doing. You don't want to just gush on them, you know, and all. Then they might think that uh, you're trying to, you know, pull something off. Yeah might come across as disingenuous a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, I know we have a shared passion around servant leadership. I actually read somewhere that you really want to create as many servant leaders as possible and that this is a driving force for you. And um, I, know, I know how Ken Blanchard defines servant leadership. I, I, I've read it in print before. But I'd like for you to talk about what servant leadership means to you. Well, let me say that uh, I think the world is in desperate need of a different leadership role model. And for me, servant leadership is the one, you know. I mean, we can just look in Washington in our country, but we can look at other <laughs> countries that are all run by people mainly interested in their own uh, well-being and rather than the, the people and what they're what they're trying to do and why they're there. And so for me, servant leadership is about uh, the people you're serving, not about you. Uh, and uh, when I tell people initially about servant leadership, sometimes I think I'm talking about the inmates running the prison or trying to please everybody, but they don't understand there's two parts of servant leadership. And the first is vision and direction and goals, because leadership's about going somewhere. And uh, that's the responsibility of the hierarchy, where people got to really know what they're being asked to do, you know, what good behavior looks like and what the values you're going to do. And if they don't understand that, then it's your fault because it's your responsibility. It doesn't mean you don't involve them in setting goals and, and that kind of thing. But uh, first, you got to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing, and that's the responsibility of the hierarchy. Then once that's clear, 
And that's the leadership part of servant leadership. Now, philosophically, you turn the pyramid upside down, and now you move to the servant part of servant leadership. And now you're really basically working for them. Mm-hmm. And your job is, what can I do to help you win? And uh, it's interesting, when I was a college professor, I was for, for 10 years, uh, and uh, I started off at a higher university in Athens. Uh, and uh, I always got in trouble with faculty because the first day of class, I always gave out the final examination. And they'd say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm confused. They'd say, acted. I said, I thought we were supposed to teach these kids. You are, but don't give me questions in the final. And I'd say, not only am I going to give them the questions in the final, what do you think I'm going to do all semester? I'm going to teach them the answers. So when they get to the final, they get A. Life's about getting A. It's not some stupid normal distribution curve. So give people the final exam ahead of time. That's about vision and direction and goals. And then turning the pyramid upside down and helping them accomplish them, teaching the answers makes a difference. See, there's three aspects of managing people's performance. Performance planning, when you're doing the goal setting and and, uh, providing direction and all. Then there's day-to-day coaching. And then there's performance evaluation. And unfortunately, Shannon, when I talk to people around the world, I say, these are the three aspects of management performance. Where do you spend the most time? What do you think that most people will tell you? I'm guessing performance evaluation or, or Evaluation, criticism. yeah. They spend all these time filling out these stupid forms, you know, and all that kind of thing. And my philosophy is that if you give people a final exam up front. In other words, they know exactly what the goals are, what good performance looks like. And then you turn the pyramid upside down and you do everything you can to help them accomplish those goals. When you get to performance evaluation, it's a piece of cake. Yeah. See? And, uh, you know, and I, I can't just believe so many people still are being forced to uh, downgrade a certain percentage of the people because you're supposed to put your people into a normal distribution curve. And yet, you know, how many people go out and hire losers? You know, we right. lost some of our worst people last year. We need to hire some new losers to fill those slots. No, you either hire winners you steal from other companies or you hire people with potential that you're going to make winners. So you're not hiring a normal distribution curve. You're trying to help them win. Well, I, I love that because I love the analogy of teaching to the final exam. I never really thought about it that way. And when you think about schooling, just in general, at least when I went to school, that was the opposite. It was more like a cat and mouse game of guess what the professor wants you to know, right? And yeah. I didn't do good with that environment. I, other people might have, but that was really hard for me. Or you have, let's just take a more specific example. I have lectures. I have a a textbook, and then I had to figure out which of those pieces of information I needed to know for the final exam. And in this model, yeah. we want people to know what's expected of them and what, what does a win look like? Yes, and I finally got faculty to back off because I'd say, well, you know, there's people all around the country that teach what I do. Why don't we uh, give a national test and I'll put up my people against anybody around the country. And they, of course, backed off because they know my students would win. <laughs> so I'd give them the final exam ahead of time and teach them the answers, you know. And it's interesting, uh, Gary Ridge, who's the president of WD-40, I don't know if you've met Gary or no. talked to Gary, but, but uh, we have a master's degree program at the University of San Diego. I look at all the MBA programs around the country and they don't teach anything about leadership, you know. They mm-hmm. stuff it in an organizational behavior class. So I went to the University of San Diego to the new dean there, and I said, why don't we create a special master of science in executive leadership 
where we emphasize leadership besides teaching marketing and accounting and, and finance and all. And so I think that the effective leadership is a transformational journey. It, it begins with self-leadership. Mm-hmm. So our opening courses are three are helping people find out who they are and get comfortable with who they are and, and help them decide what, what business they're in, what what their picture of the future is, you know, that if they do a good job, what their values are, what their personal goals are, and all those kind of things. And uh, my wife and I teach the third course there. We teach them on how to develop their own leadership point of view, which we ask them who's impacted your life as a leader in the past and what did you learn from them? And based on what you learned from them, what are your what are your leadership values? And then uh, how do you share that with your people? And yeah. all that. And, and so... Uh, Gary Ridge, when he became president of WD40, was in our first cohort. And when I was teaching the class and talking about giving the final exam in the beginning, he said, God, why don't we do that? And so we started a thing at WD40 called Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. <laughs> and he organized the whole thing around this whole philosophy of you need to get the final exam known right in the beginning and then you turn the pyramid upside down you help win and uh, he's built that company from when he took over about 300 million to several billion and the last count they have a 93% employee engagement score Can wow. you imagine? nobody has scores like that in a recent survey and they're in you know countries all over the world they ask people are you proud to tell people <clears throat> that you work for WD-40? And 98% said yes. So, uh, you know, so that's why I go, duh. You know, I can't believe why common sense isn't common practice. I can't wait to read that. I, I, I don't even know if I can count how many people I've talked and coached who they have a problem with an employee they come to process it through coaching. And I ask them, well, what do you want to happen? What do you want from this employee? And then the follow-up question to that is, have you told them that? And then, well, they should just know. They have a job description. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not the way it works. No. And so it's so it becomes so simple once they realize, oh, wait, I've never actually communicated it this way. And yes. um, which, which is to your point. It's, it's so obvious. Yes. And, and if uh, your listeners want to get more about that, Gary and I wrote a book together called Help People Win at Work. And the subtitle is a business philosophy called Mark, Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. And, and one of the things that Gary also does that I recommend is that uh, uh, every, every manager ought to meet with each of their direct reports uh, once every two weeks at minimum for 15 to 30 minutes. And the manager should schedule a meeting and the direct report sets the agenda. And they can talk about anything. They can talk about a goal they're working on. They can talk a problem at home that maybe is hurting them being at work uh, when they want and, and all. And so if you had 26 meetings a year with each of your people, would you know them? Would they know you? Oh, yeah. You better believe it. And most people don't meet with their people at all, hardly. You know, they don't. I'll meet people and I'll say, you know, I was just talking to Alice who works for you, you know, uh, is she married? Gee, I don't know. You know, I mean, mean, you got to be kidding me. And so uh, Gary set the the one-on-one meetings up, but then he also did a really interesting thing. 
is that he has a quarterly meeting with each direct report. Uh, and at the, at, at the beginning, the first item of agenda at their quarterly meeting with each of his direct reports uh, is, is the final exam still relevant? Because a lot of times you'll set goals and then you'll file them and then there's a tsunami or, you know, there's a, like what we're going through now and all, and, you know, you're not even working on the goals that you said in the beginning. And here we're evaluating people on those goals. And so at WD-40, they can change their goals all the way up to the beginning of the fourth quarter. And then uh, the other thing that's really stupid is managers filling out evaluation forms on their people. Why are you doing that? Why don't you let them fill out the forms and you either agree or disagree? And at WD-40, they have a, uh, a performance review form that says first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, overall performance. And at the quarterly meeting, the direct report uh, comes in and gives themselves an A, a B, or a C on each of their goals, and they have four or five goals that they've come off with or out of their job description. Uh, and it's the job of the manager to agree or disagree. You can see there's no Ds or Fs. And so somebody might rate themselves high in a particular goal, and the manager might say, gee, I don't think see that as an A quite yet. It's a good solid B. Let's talk about how we can get it to an A. Yeah. Or somebody could rate themselves down, you know, because they don't want to boast and the manager might have to say, that's not a C, it's a good solid B, and let's talk about this. And, and so the goal is always to see how you can get people an A average at the end of the year. You know, I'm going, duh. <laughs> you know? And so it's called Help People Win at Work. And Gary Ridge, R-E-D-G-E. And Gary is spelled G-A-R-R-Y. Oh, so he's bossy. Well, how'd you say the last name is spelled? R-I-D-G-E. Oh, okay, Rich, just like it sounds, okay. I would, that's awesome. I'd love to have him as a guest, actually. That would be, especially with that yeah. high of an engagement score, that is unheard yeah, he, of. He'd be happy to. You could uh, tell, I'll give you his telephone number okay. and then you can call him. And he'd be happy to. We do a lot of stuff together because I'm a theorist and, and he's a practitioner, yeah. although, you know, we have a company with 300 folks. Uh, and in fact, our son just took over as president in January. Imagine. I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> That's pretty exciting. Our daughter's head of marketing, and my wife's brother, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, he's our CEO. <laughs> I was just telling so. our producer, Jonathan, I said there's several organizations, not necessarily leadership organizations, but just in general that we interact with all the time in our, in our work. And every once in a while, you get to meet some people from the organization and the people don't match up with what you expected culture-wise based on what the organization preaches. And I was just telling him when I went out there, even though I had limited access because I was sick, the, the few times I did get to talk to people and be around people, um, it was just, it exceeded expectations. So it's, it's a testament to the culture that you've spent a lifetime building and that people work to live up to and from the moment you walked on the property to um like I came to breakfast the one morning thinking I was not as sick as I really was <laughs> but just the interactions with the folks working at the tables to meeting some of the family members um it's just it's nice when the people involved in the organization match the vision that you had of the organization based on the output that you have the publicly you know that there's the, all of that is the same, which is wonderful. I appreciate that. Uh, a lot of that has to do with my wife, Margie, you know, because uh, <laughs> we started, uh, 
she was president. You know, she was so much better at that. She was a PhD in communication. Wow. So uh, it's just, it's been a joint project. And uh, uh, yesterday we had a Skype Mother's Day and listened to all the family members just talking about what a glue she's been to the family oh. and to the organization. That's wonderful. That's so wonderful. Um, you talked about the influence that your parents had on your own leadership journey. What are some other influences that really impacted your work? Well, I got a chance to write a book early on with Norman Vincent Peale. I got an idea of doing a book on the power of positive management and our publisher, uh, William Morrow, uh, set up a meeting for Mark and I to meet with uh, Norman and his wife, Ruth. And uh, what a joyful gathering that was. And they had a great impact on our spiritual journey, too. But uh, they were just so positive, you know. I mean, people talk about there's two aspects of deciding whether you're going to work with somebody. One is essence and the other is form. And essence is heart-to-heart and values-to-values. And form is what do we want to do. And uh, you got to be careful when you're thinking of working with somebody that they want to jump to form right away, mm-hmm. you know, and, and bypass essence because that'll bite you eventually. And in our three-hour meeting with Norman and Ruth, there wasn't one, you know, form question. It was, you know, tell us about you, you know, we'll tell you about ourselves. And at the end, Norman, who was 86 at the time, which was, I think, 79, and he said, well, Ruth, you think we should write a book with this young man? We hadn't even decided on a title at all. And he said, absolutely, under one condition. He said, what's that? From now on, when he meets with us, uh, bring his wife, Margie, uh, and we'll do this together. Because actually, in that initial meeting, Margie wasn't there. Uh, I kept on talking about her, and so did the, our publisher. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Um and then I also got a chance to write a book with Truett Cathy, who founded Chick-fil-A, mm-hmm. oh, called yeah. The Generosity Factor. What an incredible human being uh, he uh, was. He died in his 90s. and and uh, But they're the most generous family. And, you know, it's no accident that they outperform everybody in the quick service uh, business, you know. And they're not even open on Sunday. And uh, it's all the values that Truett and his and his wife uh, generated that uh, company. So he was just an amazing person to uh, work with. And I also got a chance to write a book with Colleen Barrett, who took over the presidency of Southwest Airlines when Herb Keller decided to step down from presidency. And and uh, at the time, she was his executive secretary, and she had been that for 25 years. And he didn't want to bring in a Jack Welch lookalike, you know, because they had really clear values and clear vision and all that. And everybody loved Colleen and she knew the organization. So he said, you'll be president, you know. And so Colleen and I wrote a book together called Lead with Love. And love is spelled L-U-V, which is Southwest stock symbol. And of course, they started their business on uh, Love Field mm-hmm. and headquarters is on Love Lane. You know, imagine a company talking about love being probably the only one who's consistently made money in the airline business over the last 40 plus years. Wow. Ken, thank you so much for being here. He's going to be back in two weeks for the part two of two in this Slapcast series for episode 38. And I can't wait for you to hear 
the additional knowledge and wisdom uh, that Ken has to share with all of you. Just as a quick reminder, reach out to us at slapcast at relayleadership.org. Make sure you check out our website so you can check out any kind of like upcoming trainings or upcoming events. We would love to see you there. Now that everything is virtual, doesn't matter where you live, where you're listening from, you can join us at those events. I'd love to meet some of our out-of-town listeners at those events and training workshops. We'll see you in a couple weeks. 